Have you ever taken something embarrassing to church with you accidentally? Now, don't look. No, no. I saw some wives. Look at some husbands. This is not the time to insult your loved ones. I'm talking about not people things, okay? Um, several, many, many years ago, uh, one of the first times I think we flew to a conference somewhere, and I'd always heard that if you're flying somewhere, you should... Uh, pack some extras, just a change of clothes or something, uh, just in case your luggage gets lost. And, and I did that. I put some unmentionables and some, uh, just a regular change of clothes in my briefcase. And then uh, off we went to the conference. And I forgot all about the stuff in my briefcase until we got to the conference. So to get to my stuff, I had to go through, unpack my, uh, my unmentionables and, uh, to get to my stuff. And so it was not the best thing. Um, and so maybe you've done that. Uh, maybe you have... Uh, uh, had the unfortunate thing if you left left the bathroom and the toilet paper on the shoe thing, those kinds of embarrassing things. That, that, that stuff's supposed to stay there. Or this is supposed to stay home, and it doesn't. Um, and uh, sometimes that happens uh, to us. But we're going to look this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where um, we're going to walk through this chapter today and look at a theme that Paul speaks to us as, as he spoke to the people in Corinth many years ago. Um, he spoke to them about an issue that they should have left in their past, or they should have at least made, made, put some distance between them and their past, and, and they hadn't done that yet. And we're going to put it under the umbrella of, of maturity. One of the things that makes church hard, as we've been looking at this theme, is, is immaturity. Now, the problem with that statement is that there's not a person in this room who doesn't have some level of immaturity, right? There may be there may be some more mature, some less, but all of us have areas of spiritual or relational or emotional uh, immaturity that uh, when we come together, get together for church, we bring that with us. Um, it would be great if I could just leave the immature version of me at home and my family would breathe a lot easier at church and, and uh, it'd be better. But that, unfortunately, that part of me comes with me wherever I go, just as your immature part of you goes with you wherever you go. And so church is hard, uh, as we're going to see here in 1 Corinthians 3, when we wrestle with immaturity. Now, when we started this series, there was a little second phrase to the church is hard phrase that I think as I read through Paul's words this morning, I'm drawn back to it. When we started this series, we, we asked you to say church is hard, but remember, remember? Jesus is worth it. Somebody said it. Jesus is worth it. Maybe they were just in first service. Maybe two. Very good. Very good. <laughs> Either way. Good, good job, Like Anyway, church is hard. I'm not going to take his credit away from him because I love the answer. Church is hard, but Jesus is worth it. And so I think that phrase really helps me as I read through this passage today because Paul writes 1 Corinthians 3, not from the perspective of a cold outsider, not from the perspective of an angry judge or a frustrated referee, he writes it from the heart of a father for his spiritual children, for a spiritual congregation that was birthed out of God's work through his preaching of the gospel in Corinth. And so as Paul writes the words we're going to read today, uh, please hear them in that tone, because those are different tones, right? If you're standing before an angry judge versus, maybe most of the time, versus uh, a father who cares passionately for his kids, those are different tones, different hearts behind the words that are said. And Paul is going to confront and challenge this congregation to grow up, to put behind some immaturities that should have been left in the past before, but they need to grow up now. And so um, as we, before we read this, a couple of things I'm going to show you. But uh, first is just remember, 1 Corinthians 3 comes in the context of the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, where Paul is uh, dealing with this whole issue of divisions and factions in the church in Corinth. 
And as he talks to them and writes to them and counsels them from a distance, um, he's trying to help them get past the things and the actions and the attitudes of heart, the immaturities we'll see today, that are leading them to, uh, to divide and to get into different camps, all centered around their favorite apostles or preachers or spiritual influencers in their life. And Paul is not going to make an argument today that, that um, those spiritual influencers weren't important or, or good, but he is going to give some perspective and some um, level of, of perspective of maturity that um, I think we can learn some things from here today. All right, so here's the three things. We're going to read through chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, um, but we're going to look at three paragraphs of it just really quickly here and then kind of tie a bow around it at the end. But um, the first four verses are where we're going to start here today. We're going to look at the idea Paul speaks to a people who were not who they thought they were. Um, if you were here with us last week, we ended chapter 2, and Paul keeps making this distinction between the spiritually-minded people and the naturally-minded people. And again, naturally-minded people are unbelievers. They don't respond at all to the gospel or anything like that. Spiritual people respond to God and His voice. And the Corinthians, as they listen to that, they're thinking, of course we're spiritual people. And in fact, they think they're pretty spiritual people. They're, as you keep reading in this letter, they have a high view of themselves. But in verses 1 through 4, we're going to find that Paul speaks to them and says, you are a people who are not who you think you are because of the immaturity that exists in your life. Bring some humility and a little confrontation. Again, from the perspective of a loving father, but a confrontation nonetheless. And then he gives them the level of maturity that says, there are preachers among you who must not be thought of as more than they are. Again, they're important. They do good things. Leaders are always important in every group of people. But they must not become more than what they are. And so Paul's going to teach us about that. And then number three, the biggest focus, mature people, mature spiritual people, spiritually mature people, I should say, treasure this precious work that God is doing more than anything else, more than their own preferences, more than other people and leaders, maybe who've been good. Their eyes are always on the work that must be thought of with great esteem. And that is God's work that he is doing. And he's going to use three different metaphors of a field, of a temple, and a building, a temple building. You can make the same argument if you want the same thing. But these structures, these works that God is doing through people. But God is always the one who's behind it. It is his work. And we are merely servants of that. Okay? And so... Uh, we'll start with those verses beginning in verse one here. Paul is going to address the issue of their personal and spiritual immaturities. Okay. Verse one, but I brothers could not address you as spiritual people. Again, that's right. On, there's no chapter breaks when Paul wrote this letter. So it's right on the heels of saying um, there's natural people who aren't listening to the Lord at all. God's not involved in their life. Spiritual people who are. And Paul says, I would love to be able to talk to you as those people, but I can't. I can't address you as spiritual people, which would have been a little bit of a poke at their pride, but instead I have to talk to you as people of the flesh. As infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for that. Well, again, he's going back to when they started. We started with basics. We started with simple things. And even now, though, you are not re ready, for you are still of the flesh. They haven't matured like they should have. For a while, and this is the evidence of that, this is how Paul knows there is spiritual immaturity in their souls and their hearts because he says, I can look at your actions and see that there is not a spiritual heart in you because look what you're doing. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not 
of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and if you have, if you have a Bible, don't do this on your phone, but if you have a Bible, underline the word I in both these sentences he's going to use because the Greek emphasizes these words. It's a personal thing. I follow Paul. And another, I follow Paul, Apollos. And on and on it could go with their favorite leaders. Are you not being merely human? And so they thought they were wise. They thought they were spiritual. They thought they were quite something. But Paul says the presence of these jealousies and these bickerings and these strifes with each other, if strifes is a word, these arguments with each other, um, is evidence that there is an immaturity in their hearts, in their spiritual life. And so he talks with, about this issue of you should be this by now because it's been five years. If you do the math on when Paul founded the church and when this letter was probably written, it's four to five years out. And Paul had planted the church in Corinth, stayed a year and a half there, and then he had moved on, left other people, Apollos and others, to be in charge of the church and grow the church and uh, do the church. And, um, and then Paul had moved on to plant other churches. But now he hears these words that these issues of jealousy... And strife among you are at work, and it's dividing them into camps. And Paul says, that should have been done long before. That should not be. You should have matured to the place where those kinds of things and petty things ought to have been matured past. Uh, but you're not. And so he writes to them the words that we have just read. Now, these are people who are saved. They, the language indicates that, yes, they're brothers. Yes, they are in the family of God. But... They just haven't matured. And so it's been five years, and Paul says, a five-year-old Christian ought not to be acting like this. Being a Christian is about more than just being your average human, he reminds them. And so he addresses this failure, this refusal to mature in their life. And again, the evidence of this is the selfish perspective they are approaching this from, because it's about what I think. I think Paul is better. I think Apollos is better. And it's about I as in being in use in way too many sentences not is, what is God doing through Paul? What is God doing through Apollos? What is God doing through a Peter to grow all of us? And that view of the bigger picture that they are not seeing. And again, Paul had known these folks for five years, and he didn't write to them as an uninterested observer. He wrote to them as a father who had watched their birth in their early days. He knew them. He loved them. He cared for them. He suffered for them. He had invested into their lives and he wrote to them as someone who had watched their start, their spiritual birth, and knew their potential. He knew what the gospel could do in the lives of people who fully surrendered to it. Who fully surrendered to living kingdom-centered lives. He knew what the gospel could do, both in them and in their community, in this influential city like Corinth. He knew what the gospel could do if the church was fully surrendered to it. They could have been a light in a dark place. He had seen the power of the gospel at work in so many other cities and other places. And so he writes to them with a sense of disappointment and confrontation and frustration because he had such greater expectations for them. The phrase that Paul uses are interesting. It's interesting just to, those first four verses, just to camp there, because if I think they're helpful evaluators for our, even our own life. The phrases that Paul uses are interesting ways to look at spiritual growth in my life and in your life. We can circle back and we'll come back and look at all of them as we finish this. But just to highlight them, just remind, remind yourself what he said. He said, you are still of the flesh. In other words, there are two ways that you can be led. One is by the Spirit of God. One is by the flesh that lives inside of you or that you live in. And your behavior is showing that you are living under the flesh. 
You are not living by the Spirit. You're behaving in only a human way. Again, the implication is that Jesus calls us to be a different kind of human. And um, so he reminds us, calls them infantile. They're children still. They should have matured in their life. Spiritual growth should have been evident in them. And so Paul writes to them and just simply asks, what is it that's governing your life? Is it the flesh or is it the spirit? Is it the lusts and desires of your lower ideals or is it the calling of Christ and his kingdom? You know, there's nothing wrong if you're a new Christian, a young Christian, someone who's just figuring this thing out. There's nothing wrong with that. But there is something wrong with someone who's been a Christian for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and they're still in that spot. Paul is challenging all of us to say that ought not to be. You ought to be a different kind of human being now if this whole gospel thing is working out and the spirit is at work and leading you and you're following him in your life. This jealousy that he talks about is the vice of heart. It's a heart issue. It's not just mere actions. It's a heart issue of jealousy that, that lowers other people. You know what? The reason that this is such a big deal is, well, I picked Paul. I like Paul. He's my best. He's my church planner. He's, my, he's the guy who won me to the Lord. That's great. Well, I like Apollos because he's a great teacher. He's a great this. I like Peter because he's, he, he, gets my, he gets my Jewish roots. All those things. And those are great things. There's nothing wrong with having your favorites. But the problem became their jealousy. Well, because you don't like my person, I'm going to tear you down so I lift myself up. And, and I become the leader and I become the driver of this. That you have to see it my way or you're less than me. Versus saying, hey, I'm glad that Paul made a great difference in your life. And I sure appreciate Apollos in my life. And I'm glad Peter made a great difference and influence on your life. And, and it's all for Jesus. But it hadn't, we'd lost sight of Jesus. And it just come down to campaigning for who my favorite was. And so that created strife. And verbal confrontations um, that I'm sure demeaned other people who didn't see it your way. And so the Corinthians thought of themselves as important and mature. But Paul tells them that they are just common. Which is insulting to hear that. But Paul, again, as a father, speaks into them and says, hey, I expected more from you by now. And so there's that. The people who were not who they thought they were is verses 1 through 4. And then finally, next he comes to verses 5 through 9. Sorry, I said finally. I know you'll get excited when the preacher says finally. I take it back. I didn't mean it. All right, sorry. We're not near that part yet. So, um, so this next, I should have said, is verses 5 through 9. Um, <laughs> preachers who must not be thought of as more than they are. Now, again, Paul is going to make a great case in this book. He, he's going to have places where he defends his apostleship, even next chapter, in chapter 4. Next week, we're going to see this beautiful picture that Paul paints of what it means to be an apostle, to be an apostle after the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to get a beautiful picture of that. And so he's not diminishing leadership. He's not saying that leaders aren't important or helpful. And we all have people, I hope, in your life that have poured into you, have taught you, have influenced you, and it made you a better follower of Jesus. That's a great thing. But what the Corinthians were doing were, were getting it a little out of whack. Right? They were elevating something to the place it shouldn't have been. Teachers had become their, their thing, the thing that they would divide over. And so Paul, in verse 5, he goes on to say this, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? And he answers it. They are simply servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So again, Paul is just reminding them, look, you're dividing into these silly, petty camps. And those people that you're elevating, they're not worthy of that. They're wonderful and great people. And they're doing great things for the Lord. And we'll get to that. But again, 
keep them in perspective. They are all simply servants that, the God, that God is using Sometimes to plant seeds, gospel seeds in your life. Sometimes he comes along and uses somebody else who waters it. And, and eventually, hopefully, hopefully, a harvest will come. And then he goes on and says, He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field and God's building. And so he just simply reminds them that there is the source behind all of the activity of, of the Apollos and the Apolloses and, and every leader and preacher and, uh, and servant of Christ since. It's simply God and what he's doing through Christ Jesus. Um, and anytime we, anytime a leader elevates themselves above that, they're wrong. And anytime followers exalt a leader above that, that's wrong. Because we're all simply servants pointing to someone else. We're pointing to Jesus because we didn't die for you, as he said in chapter 1. No one in this earth, uh, no leader that you know or you've ever heard preach, died for you. No one is, was crucified for you, as Paul said in chapter 1. It's always pointing us towards Jesus. And so he asked them to have a mature perspective on how they look at the leaders and the influences in their life. Um, I love what James says, because I, I, I think this is helpful, because no matter who you are here, I bet there's somebody, if you, if you love the Lord, there is somebody that you long to see God do a work in their life. We all have those people. And I, I love the picture here, though. Paul didn't panic when all he got to do was plant seeds. And Apollos doesn't seem to panic when all he could do was come along and water the seed that Paul had planted but it was God who was doing the work behind. They were simply serving, and God was doing things that were beyond their control. In other words, I can't change a human heart. You can't change a human heart. But we can serve the one who does. And we can serve the one who, who knows all the things and who is the master gardener who gives the growth. We're God's field, as Paul would say. And so James writes this beautiful verse in James chapter 5. If, if you ever find yourself in a place where, boy, I've been trying to plant some seeds. I've been trying to water some seeds. And I just don't see this doing any good. I love this verse. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. I think that's three times he's told, called for patience, right? Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I just like that, that perspective of wisdom because I think it's easy. That sometimes the reason that we push beyond these uh, mature levels. So I got to make this happen myself. And, and Paul didn't seem to do that. Apollos didn't seem to do that. They worked diligently. They worked passionately. They prayed diligently and passionately. But they knew that they were just given a responsibility to plant seeds, to water seeds, and God had to take care of the rest of it from there. And so I, maybe there's some help in that for, for some. And the third thing, the third thing um, is this. Paul points them in verses 10 through 17, actually through verse 23. He points them to this precious work that must be thought of with great esteem. And it is a work that is better than anything I prefer or you prefer or we could dream up or I could dream up. It is a work that God is doing in the world through Christ, through the Holy Spirit. Verse 10 says this. Now, at the end of verse uh, 9, Paul says, you're, we're God's, you are God's field, you are God's building. And then he uses that metaphor, which is takes us to verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, 
Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Now again, when we talk about Paul being a, just a seed planter, or just a servant, that did not mean that Paul did not come with, with wisdom or skill or talents. Um, I think this little phrase, I came as a skilled master builder. I came with everything that I knew how to do. Uh, in service of Christ. And I employed all my gifts, all my talents. This isn't about laziness. This is about who's getting the credit, who's getting the glory at the end of the day. And so Paul came. He came to Corinth as a skilled master builder, and God used him to lay a foundation as someone else, and someone else is building upon it. So what's the foundation that he came in and he laid? It was a foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came and he preached about Jesus and Jesus crucified and Jesus resurrected and the new life that can come through that uh, as we surrender ourselves to that. And so Paul came and he built that foundation and then he left and then others came and began to build upon that work. And so there, and then he begins to talk about, okay, there's this foundation of the church that's built upon Christ and the cross and the resurrection and each one who builds upon it, but he warns us, be careful for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And so he just kind of warns us, be careful, those of you in the Corinth church who are trying to build this thing into something different, of the church that's all about Paul, or the church that's all about Apollos, or the church is about Peter, but it's not about those things. It is about Christ, Jesus. Because he goes on to talk about this. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation of Christ with gold or silver or precious stones or wood or hay or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the coming of, the, of coming of Christ and the rewards and the judgment and all that things will come, the, the, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. It will test our motives. It will test the things we have done. It will test all of that. And so he calls us to be wise in what we do. And so he uses those phrases, um, Gold, silver, precious stones, which are things, nicer things, of course, that you would find in a temple. But then he talks about more common things, or wood, hay, or straw. Uh, and he doesn't define those things. Um, and I have to think, though, what he's trying to tell us is that what you build with matters. There's probably a book that you maybe read or were read when you were a kid, maybe even in this week. Um, it's the Three Little Pigs. Remember that story? Um, the big bad wolf comes, and uh, the first pig builds a house of straw. And was this in Sunday school? Did you come up with this earlier? You just look the same excited for this book. All right, very good. I've never had this response from the Three Little Pigs before. This is great. Um, change the church name, the Three Little Pigs Church. Oh, no. But the first little pig comes and he builds a house of straw. And the big bad wolf blows it down, right? And then he builds, the next, second one builds a house of sticks. And the big bad wolf blows it down. And then the third one comes and builds a house of brick. And the little piggies are safe, no matter how much he huffs and he puffs and tries to blow their house down. And again, that illustrates, I think, what Paul is talking about here. That there are things to build with in the kingdom of God that are significant and real and deep. And there are things that are probably more shallow, will not last. And so you may be asking, well, what are those things? Hold tight, we're going to answer that after I get to the finally part of the sermon, okay? Let's finish reading the chapter, and then we'll come back and we'll answer that question. What does it mean, look like to build with more solid things? Paul goes on, says this, If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple? Now pause there, Okay. When we started this, I think it was the very first sermon, I highlighted the word you in yellow. And when I did that, you all were supposed to say a word. You remember? 
Y'all, thank you. Very good. You remember that. That was back to my heart. Good. All right. So y'all, y'all means plural, right? There's a singular plural and there's a, there's a singular you. That's confusing. There's a singular you. And there's a plural you used in the book of 1 Corinthians. And this is one of those plural ones. What Paul is saying here is that you all, he's talking about the collective group that is starting to faction, fracture, fracture and divide amongst all these little leaders and all the things. He says, all of you are the temple of God. Now, when we get to 1 Corinthians 6, he's going to use the singular and say, you, individual Christian, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we'll get to that in a few chapters. But he reminds here the congregation that is dividing, that is struggling for unity and getting along with these things. He says, all of you, when you come together, you are the temple of God. And so, do you not know that you all are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you all together? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Again, a strong word to those that are seeking to divide it and to make it something of their own creation. For God's temple is holy. It is sacred. It is special to him. And you all are that temple. And so he reminds us, he goes on, finishes the chapter this way. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly, with God. Maybe you heard the word phrase that God exalts the humble and he humbles the proud. That's a little bit of what's going on in this verse. It goes on, verse 19, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. And what an encouraging thing, I think when you look at, here they've divided, well, Paul is the best, or Apollos is the best, or Peter's the best. No, Paul says, no, all of them are given to you as servants to simply help you know Christ better. And all of them can bless you. All of them can benefit you. And so don't drive into camps and divide over this. Embrace all of them and be better for it. And so what would a mature group of Christians look like based on this passage? I think, one, they would see themselves properly, themselves properly, in light of what the gospel is doing to reshape them into the kingdom people that they are called to live as they live under the Spirit and with the Spirit's leading. So there's a proper view of themselves. There's a proper view of the servants of Christ who, who see that essential role. It's, a, it's an important role. It must be done and done well. And we appreciate that, but without an unhealthy adoration or idolization of them. And number three, that they would see the significance of the work God is doing in his people and give themselves to build it. And so there's a perspective that maturity brings that I see myself in a proper way. I see others in a proper way. And I see, most importantly, the work that God is doing in his proper way. And so what kind of building materials then are we going to build with? This is where we're going to finish. This is the finally part of the sermon, okay? And so there's a quote. We've been reading a book uh, in our staff uh, meetings called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship by Peter uh, Schizero. And uh, it's a wonderful little book. It's helped me think through lots of good things about just growing as a Christian and maturing as a Christian. And uh, Pete has this definition of what it means to be an emotionally healthy disciple. I'll just use mature disciple for our purposes today. And he uses these three things to describe this, what it means to be a maturing disciple of Jesus. Because none of us are going to get to the level of I'm done. It's always a maturing process, right? It's this. They slow down to be with Jesus. I'll put that up there, please. There you go. There you go. They slow down to be with Jesus. It's that connection, connecting point, right? It's that thing of, 
I, I can do lots of things for Jesus, but if I never engage with Jesus, unite with Jesus, walk with Jesus, love Jesus, be loved by Jesus, that's going to be a, a life that runs out of gas quick. And it's going to get to legalism and all kinds of things. And so a disciple slows down to be with Jesus. They go beneath the surface of their life to be deeply transformed by Jesus. And this is the part where I think the Corinthians thing connects. Because what were they struggling with? They were struggling with being jealous of one another. They were struggling with being jealous of leaders and, and power and things. And, and a maturing Christian doesn't just let that sit in their hearts. A maturing Christian looks at that and says, why am I jealous? Jesus, here's my heart and, and I'm honest. I'll confess to you that I'm struggling with jealousy. Why is that? And maybe it means I go back to things a long time ago. I, deep dig, dig, I dig deep into my heart, into my life, into my past, into my, into my perspective on things and my faith and my guilts and all the things. And so we allow God to go deep within us, to allow Jesus to deeply transform us, not just surface obedience, but deep heart transformation, and offers then their life as a gift to the world for Jesus. So a maturing Christian slows down to be with Jesus. That's part of your life. It's part of your routine. They go beneath the surface of their life to be deeply transformed by Jesus, and they offer their life as a gift to the world for Jesus. Now, there's a key word in that, and that's Jesus, right? It's all about him. It's all about connecting with him. It's about walking with him. It's about being changed by him. It is about serving him. And so when this is my paradigm, when this is my goal, when this is my practice, um, there's less of me, and there's less of jealousy and strifing and it's like Jesus what do you want and so I just want to finish um, there's that word again by reading verses one through four I just want to just let you see those words one more time in light of that definition of a maturing disciple listen to these words but I brothers and sisters could not address you as spiritual people but as people of the flesh as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Think of the phrase infants in Christ. Again, this is not speaking, speak, spoken to freshly baptized people who are just starting their journey with Jesus. People who have been Christians for five years or more. And he still calls them your infants in Christ. And that ought not to be. Peter would echo this in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he says, So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So Paul is calling these people to mature, to grow up, to be done with the old life. And what is that old life? It means that you behave in only a human way, being merely human. He uses both those phrases. He uses that phrase twice. Christ calls us to be more than human. That doesn't mean that's I, not superhuman. It just means I'm a spiritually impacted human by Jesus Two times Paul uses this idea of behaving only in a human way, and then he implies that the Spirit of Christ longs to lead us into a new humanity, a new and different way. 
And if you don't know what that looks like, I would just invite you to pull out your Bible and go to Matthew and read the Sermon on the Mount and listen to all the things that Jesus says his kingdom people, a kingdom humanity, will look very different from your average human being on this earth. We are called to be a kingdom people. So are we characterized more by the Sermon on the Mount? Does, that, does your life match up more with those traits or by your favorite social media outlet or your favorite news channel? Uh, does, which one of those informs your life and your thinking in response to your world? Is it the mantras of a political party? Is it the traits of the family you've grown up in that you've brought with you and they're not Christ honoring at all, but they're just what you know and so that's what you've always done and been. Which one of those are you being shaped by and into? Where are you going? Are you maturing into a Jesus-filled humanity? Or are you just settling to just be simply merely human? And finally, he calls them three different times. He uses the word flesh. People of the flesh, still of the flesh, of the flesh. Um, Peter, the same chapter I read from a moment ago, would go on to say this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter introduces this tension of the flesh. And Paul, if you want to know, well, what's it mean to be a person who's under the influence of the flesh versus a person who is under the influence of the spirit? Paul would say, I'm glad you asked because here is Galatians 5, 16 and following. So I say, walk by the spirits and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are two different approaches, desires, wants, and goals. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not able to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. So he defines then, what's the flesh look like? The acts of the flesh are obvious. There's sexual immorality, there's impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, orgies and the like. And I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, is joy, it is peace, it is patience or forbearance, it is kindness, it is goodness, it is faithfulness, it is gentleness and it is self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Paul contrasts the way of the flesh and the way of the Spirit. And I would just simply ask you, what are you maturing into what are you being discipled into? It's one of the two. You're either listening to the flesh, your flesh, the, the desires of other people, just the world, and you're being discipled into that, and you're being shaped by that, and you're living that out, and your life bears the fruit of that. Or day by day, moment by moment, you're being led by the Spirit. A little phrase, I think, well, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? I, I, when he, Paul uses that phrase, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Um, I always think of dancing um, when I see that phrase. Several years ago, my wife and I took a dancing class, our one and only dancing class we'd ever taken, hopefully ever will take in our married life. And uh, I forget what we learned to do. Um, so what was the dance called? Do you remember, remember? Some of you were there. It was the, it was three, it was three count. It was three count. Anyway, it doesn't matter. 
It, yeah, maybe it's a waltz. Who knows? I don't know. Um, and, and we did it that night. And by the end of the two hours, I was a dancing machine. I must be honest. I was good. I got it. But we were at a place where music was playing a few weeks ago and my wife wanted to dance and I couldn't do it. I didn't remember the steps. I knew it was one, two, three, one, two, three. I didn't know what to do, where my feet were supposed to go, and I couldn't do it because I had not kept in step over time. I did it once, but it wasn't an ongoing pattern in my life. And I think that's the picture that Paul is painting for us, that the Spirit is always trying to get the will of Jesus worked out in our life. And that will is not hidden, it is not obscure, it is presented to us in the pages of God's word all over the place. But if I only come back to it every so often, I'm not going to really get in a rhythm, I'm not going to see any progress, it is this. And so what are the things that we build on that foundation with personally and corporately? I think there are things like this. God calls us to live a life that is aware of God's constant presence. John 15 uses the word abide, and I think what he means by that is I don't want to see you just once a week where you talk to me for 30 seconds. I want this to be an ongoing thing throughout your day, whether it's Sunday or Monday or Tuesday. I want it to be an ongoing thing. And that's what I'm trying to learn and mature and grow into is to make that a more regular thing. And so maybe you need to set some alarms on your phone, just say every four or five hours, a little alarm saying, hey, the Lord wants to abide with you or something like that. You can find your own phrase, but the Lord is near. Just as a reminder to say, hey, I know I did my devotions in the morning, but by supper time, I was the most ungodly sinner on the world because it's been a long time and life happens in between devotions and supper, right? It's a long day and things happen. And so we need that engagement where I'm just reminded of God wants me to abide with him. And that's where I learned to keep in step with who he is, what he wants. Not only is it a life aware of God's presence, it's a heart presented to God, humbled, broken, and eager to know him and do his will. I want to know you, Lord. I want to be more of, of a man or, or, or a woman who follows after your heart. A Bible opened and examined to hear what the Spirit of God wants to be doing to you and through you and in you. Digging those deep places. Going deep and saying, well, why is there jealousy? Uh, why, are, why, why are these things here, Lord? And help me to see that and grow in that and mature past that. Um, God is rarely going to speak to you apart from the Bible. And so if you're trying to walk with the Spirit without an open Bible, uh, you're going to be frustrated and confused. How about a journal filled with reflections and concerns and hurts and confessions? Uh, no, there's no Bible verse that says you must have a journal. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. But I think it's a helpful tool. Because the unexamined life is not going to be a productive life or a fruitful life or a maturing life. And, and so if you're not having some place where you can reflect, where you can write down a thought, a confession, a, a, a struggle, a, a request, a hurt and be able to reflect back on that, you'll make so much more progress if there's something that you can simply look back on and say, hey, last week I had this thought, and Lord, this has been an ongoing thing for me. Let's mature in this area. A set schedule, a community to help you, hold you accountable, to, to encourage you in that journey, and on and on it could go. Those are the kind of things that when we look at what's that foundation of Jesus, those are the kind of things that build the character and the people and the, and the fruit that God says will last. And so God invites us into that. So what is an, a, a mature disciple? A mature disciple is, and a mature disciple does, they slow down to be with Jesus. They go beneath the surface of their life to be deeply transformed by Jesus. And they offer their life as a gift to the world for Jesus. And so may the Lord find us, find you, find me, to be a maturing group of disciples.
never content, always pushing forward, loved by the Lord, called by the Lord, led by His Spirit. Would you pray with me, please? Our God and Father, we thank you for your work. God, thank you that you have used so many wonderful people in our life. I can think of dozens of them who have influenced me, who have been servants of Christ, and they have done their job well, and I'm thankful for them. But God, may it never be about who's my favorite hero or or all those things, because Jesus is always the hero of the story. May our eyes always look to him and the great work that he is doing and wants to do and will do in us and through us and around us. Lord, help us never to be content with just being immature believers. Stir within us a conviction and a desire to grow and to be more mature, both to know you more as we pause to open our lives to you and just learn to abide in deeper and better ways, that we're transformed by you, Lord, that the things that produce jealousy and lust and the things in our heart that produce all the negative fruit and evil fruits, that, Lord, you would go deep within us and, and that we would be co-workers together to cultivate a new heart and that our lives would be available for Jesus, that we might serve in big and more often little ways just touching the lives of people around us that you give us opportunities to. And Lord, um, I pray that in five years from now that you might look at our life and see better fruits, more mature fruits, and that would not be the same old, same old that you've always seen in us. And so Lord, lead us forward. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.